Hello and welcome to the VJ Hem Onk podcast. Back in February, we joined medical experts in St. Pete's Beach, Florida at the first international workshop on acute leukemia's eye In today's podcast, we listen in on a very informative session that covers the implications of genomic and epigenomic data for the management of ALL and AML. Chaired by Mark Levis, we hear the thoughts of Ari Melnick, Klaus Metzler and Torsten Havelak on epigenetic alleles and the genetic and molecular characterization of acute leukemias, as well as the current stance on the phenotypical techniques. I'm Mark Levis. I'm here at the first international workshop on acute leukemia in St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, We're just finishing up a very informative first session this morning on what genomics can tell us about clinical management of AML patients. And with me this morning are our speakers from uh, this morning's session. We have Klaus Metzler from the University of Munich, Ari Melnick from Weill Cornell Medical College in New York, and Torsten Haferlach from the Munich Leukemia Laboratory. Um, So I'll start by saying uh, I think that was a great fun this morning. Uh, And starting off, uh, Ari's talk on um, the epigenome and its impact uh, on AML, I think everyone in the room was intrigued by the concept of this uh, clonal heterogeneity and epigenetic alleles. Um, And uh, I I will say that actually was uh, a novel concept to me, but I think uh, this is the direction the field has to go. Uh, Torsten then followed with uh, a very nice summary of the breathtaking complexity that is now facing us and uh, how we are going to try and integrate all of this information that we have um, into management of the patient in front of us. And finally, Klaus summed up some of the more practical aspects of what we actually do uh, with, um, uh, again, uh, trying to wrestle with uh, um, specifically managing an individual mutation and what that impacts uh, in the clinical management of a patient. And so again, I'll start with you, Ari, uh, getting back to um, the epigenome. Uh, Summarize for us, if you will, uh, in in a minute, uh, where you think uh, your work and the work you describe is going to take this field. Well, we view the epigenome as the software of the cell. It is the collection of programs that encode for behavior of leukemia cells or any other cell type. And we're very much at the stage of defining what the epigenome is. It is uh, still early to uh, say that we understand the different nuances and components of it. But it is multi-layered. It is, its perturbation is a hallmark of AML. Um, Certain aspects of the epigenome are perturbed downstream of the somatic mutations that occur in AML and are not limited to those that are defined as mutations and epigenetic modifiers. And um, other other aspects of how the epigenome is perturbed and contributes to disease may be independent of the genetics and occur through natural selection, um, uh, regardless of what somatic mutations are present. All of these are considerations to take into account, along with the fact that the epigenome consists of many different chemical components. There's cytosine methylation, DNA methylation is something that we 
talk about a lot, but it's really only one piece of a much larger biochemical puzzle. Now, today, in today's talk, uh, what I tried to underline is an aspect of the epigenome that has not, or has not been widely uh, explored yet, which is how it varies among the cells of a given tumor, of a given leukemia. And it turns out that given that the epigenome has a great degree of plasticity, not surprisingly, there tends to be pretty significant diversification in the epigenetic settings in, within a given patient's leukemic population of cells. And uh, we are now using deep sequencing methods methods, uh, genomic methods, we're able to now define discrete epigenetic alleles that manifest many of the same behavior that mutation alleles have, such as uh, natural selection after the pressure of chemotherapy um, or uh, having an impact on clinical outcomes or uh, even uh, having an impact on the transcriptional state of leukemia cells by providing them with uh, uh, the possibility for a given patient's leukemia to sample distinct transcriptional states that may endow them with population fitness and the capacity to identify subsets of cells able to inherently uh, tolerate exposure to chemotherapy and contribute to relapse. Well, I think. Uh it was at the end of the session that you threw out a challenge to us. We are all of us classifiers. This is an NPM1 mutated leukemia. This is a CDP alpha. And you sort of implied, stop thinking that way. And I think that actually is uh, probably going to be important. Um, we still, for practical reasons, tend to do that. But moving forward, it's pretty clear from the way the data is emerging that we're going to have to get used to not being lumpers. Um, if you will. Yeah. Now, now, Torsten, uh, again, you offered a glimpse of the future uh, and um, the, the huge number of layers that we have now to offer the, the way we classify an AML. It's no longer just a microscope or a microscope and, and um, chromosomes. Could you just briefly elaborate on, on what you told us about the different layers of analysis for a patient? Yes, well, for sure we are on a time point now where everything will change from the clinical point of view, starting from the diagnosis but also defining the prognosis and the correct treatment of the respective patient. And today, still most of us rely on phenotypical uh, techniques such as morphology of the bone marrow, the peripheral blood and cytogenetics immunophenotyping we all need this for the diagnosis for classification and also for prognostication if we use systems from the ELN or other scores but in a number of molecular markers that only not will be added and are already added to the diagnostic approaches but will guide our treatment decisions in the future including the knowledge that Ari and Klaus also pointed out in their great lectures, they are increasing and that means that we have a nearly endless number of compositions per patient that we have to try to define at the beginning to do the first and at least the second best step for treatment and also define markers for MRD to not overtreat or undertreat the respective patients. And by doing all that in AML but all the other hematological diseases in addition, it will not be feasible to start with only phenotype but we need a lot of molecular techniques in parallel and what is even more 
necessary and mandatory is how we approach these huge data sets in a time that we can also offer the patient's care based on that. The turnaround time for an AML should be quick and to start with the treatment or latest after the remission maybe achieve what's going on the next and if no remission what's we do then and without a lot of bioinformatic help and tools like artificial intelligence uh, I think we will not be able to handle the data in the best way we should handle them including all the knowledge the other two speakers also gave us in their uh, wonderful So talks. that brings up a good point. Kirsten, you talked about the incredible complexity of the diagnostic data that you now have or have access to on any given AML patient, but we have a disease where uh, it occurs quickly, decisions have to be made quickly, the information has to come back, which is interesting in contrast to uh, other cancers. AML is very unique, and yet while we have to move fast, we perhaps have more information than any other disease. That was an interesting discussion on genomics and epigenomics. The session continues with the experts exploring the evolution of leukemia and the future of biomarkers. Also discussed are the exciting advancements in the use of artificial intelligence for data analysis and what is the fascination with pre-leukemic clones. Could you talk about how you're using uh, artificial intelligence to maybe uh, speed that up or integrate that information? Well, that's true. And from the respect of having the data, we, first of all, if we want to go for genome, we need the time to sequence the genome. And even if we speed it up in our facility right now for a week, it's seven days. And you normally start the treatment, the induction treatment for the ML before seven days. So I think it will not be very helpful at this time of the time how to sequence the genome uh, for the induction start of the respective treatment. But after the induction has been done, after two or three weeks, you will have the data available if you include a lot of artificial intelligence tools. And that means you need a specific software that also is doing a lot of its own because you couldn't start with all these cases every day from the beginning. By learning tools like machine learning tools and self-organizing maps and others that I showed in my talk as well, we will get help from these uh, artificial intelligence software tools to get this information done within, let's say, one to two weeks after the, we receive the samples and that will hopefully influence our decision making after the induction treatment. So, Klaus, uh, in your talk this morning, uh, you focused on um, some of the practical aspects of what we do with uh, the, some of these epigenetic mutations. Could you talk briefly, just sort of summarize? Um, um, yeah, one of the um, one of the aspects we are interested in in our work um, is uh, to perceive AML as a as a dynamic disease. And uh, one thing that I find very interesting is to study the evolution of leukemia. And um, one of our recent results was actually that uh, when we treat an AML patient with induction chemo, um, we often see that they, um, they clear their leukemia clone, but on a molecular level, they do not clear all the leukemia-associated mutations. Um, and we do see that um, what we call pre-leukemic clones, which look normal under a microscope, but molecularly they already have a subset of the leukemia-associated mutations, they still can be found in patients who are in a remission. And then um, when we look at the outcomes of these patients, we see they have a, a, a way higher relapse rate, um, probably unless you transplant them. 
And I think that that prompted a very interesting discussion this morning, um, because this by itself is an is an interesting observation. But we don't really understand how these pre-leukemic clones, which are not the same as MRD, they are not leukemic cells. So how do these cause or associate with relapse of the, the Frank leukemia clone? I think that is very poorly understood. And the other question was when you um, you actually look deep enough um, with very sensitive methods, um, you will probably find persistence of such leukemia-associated mutations in the leukemic clone or in a pre-leukemic pre clone in almost each single patient. So then that, of course, brings up the question how we, how we can we include that in our clinical management decisions? Um, can we define a cutoff that helps us to identify patients who will ultimately relapse? And then do these patients need additional treatment, maybe in the form of maintenance therapy or allogeneic transplant? And on the other hand, if there are patients who have persistence of a pre-leukemic clone, maybe at a very low level, but they don't relapse, then of course, what is the mechanism for that? Um, how is this sure. clone controlled? And so it, the, in, we've long known that there really isn't an effective maintenance therapy for AML, but we haven't really tried one based on either the genetic complexity of the d individual patient's disease, and to be honest, our agents that we're using as maintenance are, uh, as what I described, crowbars attempting to do needlepoint. Uh, they're very crude things. So moving forward, where we have targeted agents and we have this genetic information, this epigenetic information, can we individualize, personalize the medicine uh, for each patient? Uh, and so this raises the issue of the trials might be very tiny. Um, uh, we're going to have to uh, pool patients, work together internationally, I think, to, to generate these sorts of trials. And it's the more general question of developing not only prognostic biomarkers, but predictive biomarkers that tell us how to stratify our patients to the most effective treatments. And we briefly touched the topic of the hypomethylating agents, which, as we discussed, do not only act by, um, by hypomethylating the genome, but also by cytotoxic effects, of course. But they are very widely used in the clinic. Um, and I don't think we have um, good biomarkers that tell us which patients are going to respond to the cytobin or acecytidin. And it, it, I think it, uh, like intuitively, you would think that mutations in DNA methylation pathways should somehow be related to the efficacy uh, of, of demethylating agents, but we don't really have robust biomarkers for that yet, and I think so, that's a yeah. it all made clinically sense 20 years ago. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, the Not more so you know, now. the less you know. Yes. That's a okay. All right. I think then that wraps up our discussion uh, after uh, our morning session, uh, and I'm here at the International Workshop on Acute Leukemia. Want to keep up to date with all the latest hemoglobin? News, including cutting edge content straight from iWorld 2018. Follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk and get involved in the discussion. Tweet us your thoughts and don't forget to subscribe to us at VJHemonk.com.